Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, also the land of the Lenny Lenape people, I am Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations that we normally have on the front lines. Only this time, we have microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And on this episode, we are joined by Dr. Michael Emerson, author of the landmark sociological study on evangelicals and race divided by faith and a renowned sociologist. He's also the head of the Department of Sociology at University of Illinois. Now, in the context of the rise of white Christian nationalism and the shameless claiming of that moniker by a growing gaggle of politicians, I invited Dr. Emerson to Freedom Road because I was blown away, like literally blown away by a talk that he gave based on his most recent study of white evangelicalism. Now, there are things that he and his team found that like suddenly made a lot of my life make sense, just like it did when I read Divided by Faith, except this one went even deeper. And also some of what he found, well, it scared the bejesus out of me. It really did. So we want to know how you think. What do you think about this after we have this conversation? Go ahead and tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. And also, hey, share the podcast with your friends. We have a growing audience, and it is so exciting to see this, really, this community growing all over the world. So please keep sharing. All right, so I'm going to dive in now, and I'm going to ask you, Dr. Emerson, we always start with our own stories so that we have a sense of the context of the person we're talking with. So I wondered, oftentimes when we talk to scientists, we don't think of them as having a life outside of like the lab, right? And so, but it's, I think it's important that folks actually do understand your life outside of your studies of evangelicalism. You yourself have evangelical background or faith. Can you share like your conversion story and your story of faith? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I had to chuckle when you were saying that because I think it was in second grade when I realized my teachers were people and had lives. That just stunned me. Because we lived in an apartment building and so did the teacher. It was weird. That's so, <laughs> funny. Yeah. Yeah. So I became, came to Christ when I was 18 years old. And as we'll talk, I lived in an all white world and that was where, my Where life. was that world? That world was in small town, Minnesota at that time. That's oh, very okay. white. There the distinctions were, are you Swedish or are you Norwegian? Things like that. Right. right. Yeah. So I went on to get my PhD and started teaching. And then I, we call it an Acts 2 moment, a real, like a second conversion. And that second conversion was, I was age 30. And that wow. was God saying, I don't, I, I always say, I don't, I don't hear from God very directly, very often, but this one I did. And that was wow. uh, race in this country grieves me. I will not let you alone. I will not let you forget it. And then I, we got one command as a family. And at that point, we had two children with a third on the way. Ultimately, they had four. 
You and your family will live as the racial minority until I tell you otherwise. And that happened 27 years ago and we haven't been told otherwise. Yeah. So we had to switch jobs, switch neighborhoods, switch metros, switch churches, switch schools. So you moved. You literally moved your family. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's right. I never knew all of this. And I, but one thing I do know is that when I was reading Divided by Faith, first of all, that work just rocked my world. You know that. We've talked about this before. It literally made my life make sense that I have evangelical background and all of the rest. And but one of the things that you said in that book, we'll, we'll talk more about this on the other side, was that, in fact, it was the only positive thing I found in the entire book, is that the one piece of hope is the act of immersion, immersing oneself Mm -hmm. particularly white evangelicals in communities that are not their own, I would maybe think of it today as in stories that are not their own, is the only hope for white evangelicals to have a broadened worldview. So I'm struck now understanding that you had that experience. That actually is what caused your transformation. But can you give us a little more about kind of, it feels like you might've had like a Paul moment where Paul got greeted by God on the horse, like he got thrown off the horse. What was it that instigated this encounter Uh, with God? So I was at a conference and after each speaker, they wanted you to fill out in the little booklet they had given you. What did you hear God say? Mm. And so they might've been talking about how to be a good father. And I would say, I heard God say, racial division is not of me. They didn't say anything about that, but it was like, Somebody had a hold of my hand and was writing these things down. And when I looked at them together, that's when I noticed over this three-day conference, everything was about race. And yeah, when I say like this X2 moment, it was like my feet got glued to a surfboard and it just went. And I was not in control. It just was happening. I read every book I could get my hands on about race and religion. We had this metamorphosis. Our family had to change. And then... What really was instructive is when we made all these changes, then we saw the reality of race. I tell my students now, if you don't think race is real, cross the racial line and watch what happens. So what happened for us is family rejected us. They were angry at us. Um, What? Even Family rejected you because you moved? Oh, absolutely. Because what it was said is our family struggled to, to make it. And now you move. And to not make it means to live with African Americans in their mind. And so we were like flipping, our, flipping them off, what our family had. And they, we were called the devil for doing this to, the, to our children. And how dare we? Sure, if you want to have, want to go save the world, go ahead. But you can't do that to the children. So, yeah, it was just, we never expected all those kind of things to happen. But they did. Wait, can I just ask real quickly, like, what's the denomination that you were part of? At that time, it was Baptist. Was, was it Baptist or was it Southern Baptist? No, Northern Baptist. So Northern that, Baptist? Called Baptist General Conference. So it's a little different, but it's wow. in the North oh. only. Yeah. Wow. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still my jaws on the floor. So in the Northern Baptist tradition, your family, I wonder, do you think that they would have had the same response if you had taken your kids to Africa? No. They would have been celebrated and what a true Christian I was would have been. My God. Were you a sociologist at this time? Or were yeah, you- very young sociologist, a couple of years in as a professor. It's so deep. God really had a calling on your life. Yeah, looking back, right? And it caused a lot of division within our marriage too, because it was 
hard for my wife to understand. Wow. You know, I, I get what we're supposed to, but I don't understand why. Yeah. You know, and it wasn't really till you mentioned the book Divided by Faith, till that came out that she saw, okay, this is why. Because I would have never had any remote chance of writing such a thing had we had not had this huge life change in addition oh. to research, right? Yeah, there's no way. No. Do you, I'm sorry, this is a little bit of a segue, but or not segue, but like a little bit of a non sequitur, but it's not. Have you seen the, I think it's on Netflix. It might actually be on Prime, Under the Banner of Heaven. I haven't got to see it. I've seen that it exists. Gosh. Is it good? You have got to watch this. Okay. This is a must. I mean, literally, this is a must. Now, obviously, not actually, not obviously, this is Under the Banner of Heaven is about the LDS. It's about the Church of Latter-day Saints, right? So the Mormons. And, but I was watching this going, this explain like this feels so familiar. It feels so much like the deconstruction work that's happening within white evangelicalism and also for people of color who've been immersed in white evangelicalism. I mean, right now. And it seems to me that you had that kind of an experience and experienced a lot of what that lead character, which is the, the rejection, the questioning even of his wife. He And it's a true story. It's actually based on a true story. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... All right. So I want to know from you, why this study now? Yeah, you're talking about the current study that you mm -hmm. heard to talk about. Yes. I heard you speak at the ECC Midwinter Conference. Although I wasn't there, a friend of mine, right after hearing you speak, sent me, like message, direct messaged me the link to the video. And so I think you were probably still at the conference, but I, while you were at the conference and finished speaking, I was watching what you had just said. And my mind was being blown. So why, and you're, you spoke about a study that has not been published yet. Yeah. So thank you for coming on and talking with us about this study that has not been published yet. But I think more people need to know about it. Yeah, I appreciate it. You mentioned Divided by Faith. We wrote that, that came out in 2000. And we were interested in, well, okay, 20 years later, what was the reality? Was it the same and things changed? So that's the way the study itself started and we were able to get a grant and we just said, we're really going to go all in on this, make it a big national study. We're going to do every method we can think of so that more confidence when you don't just do a survey, but do a survey and focus groups and interviews. And right. we were spending time in churches and listening to what was being said. And what became clear is there'd been so much change. It, it wasn't worth saying there'd been change. There, there was something different that we were identifying. That's, I know we'll get into that, but it, it's, it actually is in a book coming out next year with Oxford, but it hasn't come out yet. So. Oh, we'll good. It is. It. So Oxford, do you know yeah. the title yet? Yeah. They just wrote to... to me and said, it has to be called the religion of whiteness, yeah. which is what we're going <laughs> to talk about. That's what I was hoping they were going to call it. Because <laughs> that's what we're calling this segment, the religion of whiteness. That is so fabulous. So. My friends, y'all are in for a treat right now. We are about to dive into the religion of whiteness. Stay tuned. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Let me just tell you, just like with Divided by Faith, I am a, an evangelist at heart. I know that if I, if you believe in spiritual gifts, there's lots of different spiritual gifts. One of them is the gift of evangelism. Um, in other words, like telling people about good news, the good news. 
I have been telling people about the good news of the of Divided by Faith for now, what is it, 22 years. And I have in the last year been telling people that I don't know if it's good news, but the news about the religion of whiteness since I heard that recording, heard your talk. So first of all, what do you mean by the religion of whiteness? Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me start with... Break it down. Yeah. We'll do two things. We'll say, what is whiteness? And then what is religion? And then we'll do whiteness of religion, religion of whiteness. Good. So I actually preface it this way. We know that religion is raced. It is racialized. Religion is deeply impacted by race. But what I'm trying to do here is say there's a flip side to that. And that is that that we can take race and it has actually become religionized. Race becomes religion. So that's what we're really focusing on here in the religion of whiteness. So by whiteness, our simple definition is that it's white people along with supporters of other hues and their dominance. That's whiteness. If we want to go a little bit more, it would be this imagine right that white is the norm, the standard by which everything else is measured and evaluated. Mm-hmm. And if you think about like, if you go to a concert of your favorite performer or group, there's such a power that you can't get on a record. And that power is that the whole group of fans is around this person or group performing. And there's this effervescence that arises from the group itself. That's the power we're arguing is actually what is worshipped in the religion of whiteness. It is the utter dominance and universality of being white and dominating the world in so many ways. Well, I'm sorry. I'm just, (laughs) I just kind of, I'm still soaking in that. And honestly, I'm a little bit, I'm wondering if you can also, before we move forward, if you could break down something you said in the very beginning, which I'm sure some people are thinking, what does that mean? That religion is raced? Can you explain what you mean by that? What is that? Yeah, racialized, right? So especially in the U.S., right? we, We don't have religion. We have white religion, right? White churches, we have black churches, we have native churches. And then, Mm -hmm. of course, what Divided with Faith is trying to show is not just that we have these separate churches, but in the very way we understand the faith, it is shaped by the racial group we're in. So that's what we mean by religion is race. And then when you flip it, so not only is religion racialized, but it's the reverse as well. And that's what this book is focusing on. Okay, so I got that. Now I get it. Thank you. And I'm sure that some of our listeners were going, I don't understand that religion Mm. being race thing, but it is true. So then going forward, you just said that what you discovered, or I think where you were, were, what you were saying is that what you discovered was that that aura that comes off of, let's say we're going to a Hillsong conference, right? Or we're going, let's just name names. I don't mind naming names, right? (laughs) Hillsong conference or... That that conference that is almost all white people in the audience or on stage and they're doing the worship thing. It's like a worship band, just like going to a big like U2 conference or co- concert or something. And they're worshiping with their hands raised and the eyes are closed and they're having this intimate relationship with God. You're actually saying that what they're worship, what they're actually worshiping is whiteness, which is the dominance yes. of whiteness. Okay, you got to. You have yeah. to break that down because those are fighting words for a lot of people. I know. Yeah. The, and this actually comes so within my field of sociology, one of our founders is named Emil Durkheim. And he 
wrote a book back in 1912, mm-hmm. <laughs> so a while ago, but he was trying to understand what is the essence of religion. People are religious around the world, but they have different religions. They believe in those different religions. Mm-hmm. So is there something in common? He's not trying to make a statement about whether there's a true religion or not, or God or not. He's just trying to understand sociologically what's the function of religion. And what he identifies as his essence ultimately is expressed through sacred symbols, which we'll talk about in a moment. What people are actually worshiping is the power of the group, something they cannot ever experience on their own. And they don't know how to name it. So they call it, in his mind, they call it God, or they call it, in this case, well, they wouldn't call it whiteness, but that's what we're calling it because we're saying that's the power of this particular group. Wow. So should we, so let me just ask this for clarity. Are you saying, or should we assume that Durkheim was an atheist and he didn't really believe in God? And so he's trying to figure out how does this thing called God surface in the world and religion is actually the worship of communities versus an actual God. Like, is that, is, is that there? Because if that's there, we have to know that. Yeah. No, it's not quite there. I mean, okay. I don't know if he was an atheist or not. And he wasn't trying to say anything about some eternal truth. He is trying to ask, why does every society have some form of religion? And whoever the, whatever that form, people believe it even to the death. So he's trying to understand, is there anything in common across them? And he identifies that in, there are religions that have no God. So how does that still have a power? Well, that's true. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting. And so that's his mm-hmm. answer. Yeah. Okay. So what are the main lessons that you gleaned from the research that you did? And what was your methodology? You said you did everything. Like you did yeah. the surveys, you did the focus groups and the one-on-ones. What, right. Yeah. yeah. And we started with nationally across the nation, interviewing Christian leaders of color filming it so we could watch it back very carefully, mm-hmm. their permission, and just asked one question. What do you think is the current state of race and the church? I and, think I uh, was part of that. Was I Yes, you, I believe you were. So it's this study. Yes. Like, How about that? Same study. How about that? Okay, so in the interest of disclosure, there you go. I was part of the study. All right, so cool. Yeah. So how many leaders did you interview? A little over 100. And that was our start to decide, okay, what are the main things we're hearing, the main categories? What do we need to actually, as we went to the next round, which is design a national survey, what issues do we need to be focusing on? What questions should we be asking? So that was the next stage. What we usually like to do when we do surveys, right, is people give answers, but you don't really know why they're answering. So then we follow up with focus groups and individual interviews and ask them to expound on answers. So we did that. We also then had people on the team go into churches and spend many months there. We call that ethnography. They're participant ethnography. They're trying to tell us, does race in any way play a part in this congregation? How does it get played out? Do you see it in the materials and the sermons and all of that? So we also Mm -hmm. had that. And then we did content analysis. of That's where you analyze what printed things say, what's in social media, all of that. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to bring all that together to get a picture. And then this is the picture, this religion of whiteness. Now, I told you I would say what whiteness is, but for religion has in common, it always has sacred symbols that represent the religion. It always has beliefs. It always has practices. Mm -hmm. 
we should talk about what the sacred symbols are. So the sacred symbols in the religion of whiteness, these are the objects by which that is worshipped. And those objects are a white Jesus. When you go onto Google and you just type in Jesus, you will see that Jesus is white. And that's very important. When you put up representations of Jesus who are not white, followers of the religion of whiteness will laugh or they will say that's blasphemy or they will say that's silliness because that's not Jesus. Jesus is white. We'll see in a little bit why that matters so much. The second um, Wait, sacred Wait, go back. You just don't, you can't just skid over that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you got to break it down on this show. So what are we seeing that, why, that shows us why this matters so much, why the white Jesus matters so much? All right. So one of the beliefs is the universality of whiteness. So mm -hmm. if Jesus is white, yeah. we know Jesus is universal. Because uh -huh. Jesus is white and... Jesus is universal, then whiteness is universal. And if whiteness is universal, that means that it's at the center. It is the core. It is everything. Anything else is an aberration. Is So if you say black theology, you would never say, you don't say white theology, right? That's because right. That's right. That's the universal theology. Everything else is some usually version that pales compared to the real theology or the real science or and that comes out of, that's part of the religion of whiteness. That's why you can only get there if you have a white Jesus. Jesus must be white for that reason. I, so so I'm, I'm reminded of my own moments with white Jesus and the church that I went to, a Nazarene church, the very first Nazarene church in, in Los Angeles. And there's this blonde-haired, blue-eyed white Jesus that stands right behind the altar, really huge, takes up the whole back wall inviting everybody in, right? And when I was in grad school, I saw Malcolm X with oh. Denzel Washington. Yeah. Right? Oh yeah, so good movie. Yeah, it's like, right, yeah, very good. But there's this, that moment, right? Where I think he's, yeah, I think he's talking to maybe Johnny Carson or something like that, or I don't know, but some kind of talk, right, talk person. And he's remembering back to the time when he was in jail and he kept seeing when he went to the chaplain's office, the white Jesus on the wall, and he starts going off about how God, how the Christian, how Jesus is white and he's house slaves and field slaves and all that. And I just got totally disturbed. I went to bed that night and I imagined that God was white. And I was, I didn't do anything to him. I was like, okay. And then God, I literally like look up and God is black. And I was like, oh no, like I oh, had internalized. Wow. Yes. I, black woman, had internalized white God. And I was like, oh no, who is this? Who are you? This is not familiar. And I, in my dream, I still remember saying it. I want white God back. I want wow. white God back. Yes. And so then it was like blink and white God was back. And then all of a sudden it was like, I had this aha moment in my dream. Like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and so I said, okay, no, this is not actually what I want. Bring back black God. And so then was held in the arms of black God for the first time in my life. Wow. And it Powerful. was transformative. Yes, it was transformative. Okay. How old were you? I was, let's see, that was about 1993. So I was about 24, 25. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was not on staff with university yet. I had gone through Campus Crusade, all four years of Crusade. Young life is how I came into the faith. You know, the whole deal. I was, I was essentially a white Christian. Mm -hmm. 
with black skin. I had internalized white Jesus. And then I, and this is the thing. Then I went to my pastor and I told him about it. And sitting right behind him on the shelf was James Cone's God of the Oppressed. And he, and he was down, like he got it. But he said, Lisa, and I told him, my dream is that we would be able to take a mallet to that stained glass window with Jesus, that white Jesus, and mm-hmm. just crash it. And then let's do another thing. Let's do a new one. And he said, I want that too, Lisa, but I can't because there are people here who built that window who are still here. We mm. have to wait for them to pass. And it struck oh. me. So the next Sunday, I know I'm taking up time here, but here, this is important. The next Sunday, I went to church and I'm sitting in the front row because I was on the worship team and I'm waiting. And it just struck me. Everybody who went up was white. And it struck me. These are the words that came to me. It must be nice to have a God who looks like you. Yeah. It is very nice. Yeah. That's powerful. Wow. So, so, t- so tell me, yeah, how, it's so nice that people actually not, they don't worship the God, they worship the whiteness. So yeah. what's, what are some more lessons that you learned? Yeah. So two more important symbols. And the second one is this merging of the cross and the flag. So you often see representations of them both in churches, especially in white churches, but you can see them elsewhere too, right? Until they're actually the same thing. So I've got pictures of crosses that are the flag. They're either made out of the flag or Wow. Yeah. So you get that. And that becomes very important because that's, again, part of this universalizing whiteness, the nation and God, right? They become the same thing. And so, and then the last one, it's really emerging and that is firearms, a serious one. Oh. So firearms represent for big swaths of followers of religion, whiteness, freedom. This is a way to say we are free. It's also a way to say we are dominant. And it's also a way to say we have the ability to defend ourselves when needed. So be careful. Wow. Wait, very quickly. Did you find these symbols just by scanning stuff like Googling or did this rise out of your interviews and your one-on-ones and things like that? That's right. Out of the research. So out of the interviews, out of attending churches, out of, I'll give you an example. So my co-author is Glenn Bracey. He's a professor there in Villanelva. So not too far, Mm -hmm. far from Philly. Mm-hmm. And he has, he's got this incredible paper called Race Tests. And what he did in that paper was he goes, he's an African-American, he goes to white churches and he attempts to see if he can become an accepted member there. And so he says what he found is in each case, he is tested to see if he's the right kind of African-American. And that means, is he the one willing to accept this religion of whiteness and to assimilate? In any case in which he was identified as not, he would be go through these series of aggressive moves, sometimes microaggression, sometimes overt, until he knew he was not welcome and he would leave. One of them he tells about is literally going to a Bible study and they were worried about him. It was clear they were agitated that he was a black man in their home. And to deal with that, they took him down a hall ostensibly to show them family history and what they're showing them is their room full of guns. They're showing the pictures of their service in the military holding guns and making it very clear. So, yeah. So this black man goes and embeds himself in a church community and this is what he experiences. Is this across the country? Yeah, across the country. Kind of amazing. What a great, what a great life to be able to do that. Yeah. But also very scary. So 
So you found that guns are a rising symbol of white, yeah. of the religion of whiteness. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the symbols, the symbology matters. It's the yeah. cross blended with the flag. It's white Jesus and it's guns. Yeah. So it's power. Yeah. It's yeah. really That's about. That's really what it is, right? You worship yeah. with the power. That's what, that is the argument. It is power. So, I mean, one of the things, so it's interesting for, to hear you talk about whiteness in a sociological sense, that it's, it is about dominance. It's about being the center. It's about being normative sociologically, because I always think about it in terms of a legal sense, like whiteness mm. was created legally, you know, literally 1662 was where you can trace it back to, and then embedded in the constitution. And then the census, like in the, on the very first census, whiteness white is the only race and everything yep. else is either it's either slave or other which i thought was amazing when i saw that right and it doesn't just say white right it says free white so it's already identified what it means to be white you're free right that and that is literally what it meant in 1662 if you were going to be white that meant you were going to be free and so so i think that the thing that now so now i want to know of this religion of whiteness who's practicing it because mm-hmm. we think of we we think of who would practice the religion of whiteness? I mean, I it's pretty obvious, I think, of white sheets, right? So yeah. the bed sheets and the pointy hats and the burning crosses and all. And it's funny that you didn't know, you didn't name or mention a burning cross. Now mm-hmm. it's the flag with the cross. Mm-hmm. All right, so, so who's practicing this? A huge number of people. So we did test after test. And what we found is that about two thirds, two out of every three folks that, we call white practicing Christians are actually practicing this religion of whiteness. So it's a huge claim, right? Let me say what I mean by practicing Christian. You say that you are a Christian. Our second measure is that you had to say your faith was very important to you. And our third is that you were attending church at least once a month. So we did a whole series of comparisons with multiple groups. We're taking all the racial groups and then we're subdividing racial groups into practicing Christian and not. And the reason we use practicing Christian, Lisa, is this time around, is it didn't seem to matter if people were mainline progressive whites or Catholic whites or evangelical whites. Wow. They were answering these questions. They were talking about this in the same way. So when we looked and break down by Christian, non-Christian, and the racial groups, one group stands alone, question after question after question, and that is practicing white Christians, where two-thirds are, for example, we asked them, questions in the Bible. Do you think that the Bible says this? Do you agree? And all Christian groups, majority agree, except for white practicing Christians, majority disagree. And then when we ask questions about, should you care for the poor? Should you welcome the stranger and the foreigner? Should you, as an act six, turn power over to ethnic minorities so they can deal with the issues they're facing? So that, right. But if we ask a question like, Bible says we shouldn't use unwholesome words. So therefore we shouldn't use unwholesome words. Then everybody agrees with that. So wait, so they didn't agree with Act 6? No, the majority did not agree. And so they we did agree follow, with the Bible. <laughs> yeah. Only one group, right? The practicing white Christians. So what we found is when verses are about other groups, honoring other groups, sacrificed by their own group, two thirds over and over don't of white practicing Christians do not agree. That's what the Bible says. So we followed up to ask them why, right? And so they could actually, in the survey, they could write down, and then we followed up with focus groups, but they would often write things like, let's use the foreigner, welcoming the foreigner or stranger. Right. They would say, 
well, that doesn't apply to illegal immigrants. So they would, it, the question had, it didn't say anything about that, right? But they immediately went to that. So therefore we don't have to do it. When we were in Can our I focus ask, group. Wait, oh, yeah, so I'm no, I mean, I'm sorry. It's all right. Now I've heard this before. I heard the talk, right? But still, I don't know. There's still something in me that's really well disturbed. And I can imagine that the people who are listening are disturbed as well. And I just want to ask again, how many people did you survey? Like, mm-hmm. where was the survey done? Was it only in the South? Was it only in the Midwest? <laughs> like, who did this survey? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks and, and for asking. And all that. Yeah. A national random sample of about 3,000 Americans, adult Americans. So it, it is completely representative of the United States. And then we can know if they're Christian or not Christian by their definitions. And we can break it down, male, female, what the racial background, all that is. So it's, yeah, it's representative for sure. This is honestly, so one of the things that has been, and I know you're not done. So actually, I know I cut in. Why don't you finish what you were going to think and I'll jump in with the rest. (laughs) No, please go. We're at a good point. Okay. So in 2016, when 81% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. Oh my gosh. They really got a bad rap for good reason. But everybody focused on them. And they didn't focus on the reality that 60-something percent of Catholics, 63, I think, percent or 68% of Catholics voted for Donald Trump. That's right. Mm -hmm. And 53% of historic white churches voted for Donald Trump. Like, really? Like people, mm-hmm. they, so basically the majority of white people voted yeah, for Yeah, white Christians, a majority of all categories you can think of voted, yeah, that voted that and way. And nobody could really understand why that was true. And now your study is uncovering that two thirds, that is 66% about mm-hmm. of people who call themselves Christians who are white in America across all denominations and streams of the faith I mean, don't believe the Bible, like argue with the Bible. That literally argue with the Bible. Yes. And the interesting thing is we only, in those particular questions, we only asked those who first told us that the Bible should be always used to determine right or wrong. So only if they agreed with that. So did we then ask those questions and still two thirds said, no, that's not what the Bible says. Okay. So are there any other lessons that you gleaned? An important one is that within the religion of whiteness, there's actually two groups. Okay. Okay. So one group, which is 75% of the people, according to our analysis, mm-hmm. of what we're calling the white veil, V-E-I-L, white veil. These folks are the folks who will say there is no race. There is no racial problem. There is no racial privilege. There is no whiteness. There are only people. And they'll just keep saying it over and over. And so it would be akin to saying, right, there is no cancer. I am not sick. I am just fine Mm. over and over, even if I have the cancer. Wow. 25% are the people that get a lot of attention and they're holding guns. We call them white might. They're the literal soldiers who will fight for this religion overtly. They're the ones who say, like the majority of the people in that group say being white is of utmost importance to them, that they feel the need to defend being white that it is more than acceptable that whites have more wealth than other groups and so on. So they're very extreme. They're probably the folks that, you know, out of that would charge the capital and things. So these two groups work together. They're within the same religion, but one gets to say it's not really happening and the other 
is there when it gets attacked or pushed back, then they will do the fighting. I am thinking of this. I'm still taking it in. And I'm having a hard time having hope in all of this. And I don't want you to jump to hope yet. I don't. But I mean, the thing that I, the thing that is making me realize the breadth of this is the two thirds number. Mm -hmm. Because I like that you just broke that down into two separate groups because it is true. We would, in fact, I remember in the 1990s, we would have characterized this in the 90s would have been to say to be anti-racist is the only way to not be racist, right? Like the whole racism language. And so if you are not anti-racist, then you are racist, even if it's passively racist. Like that's the way we, we talked about it back in the 1990s. And what that helped people to see who were not wearing the pointy hats and hoods and the white sheets and stuff is they began to think, okay, well, maybe I could be racist too and not even know it and, you know, go into. But what you are talking about, actually, I don't know if it feels even deeper than like Hmm. just racism because it's not about beliefs about others. And it's not even just about, it's really not even just about how much one benefits from a system right? Like the systems that were created to entrench whiteness, because one can benefit and kind of nominally go ahead and not even know about it and skate and surf on whiteness and not realize it and then wake up to it and go, oh, and turn around. But you're talking about worship. Yeah. Yeah. That's another level. See, that's what I'm trying to say that we were we're not why do we not get anywhere addressing racial inequality right, and injustice? Because yes. I don't think we have grasped that race has become religionized. And that's when you have something become transcendent, people will do anything to preserve it. It is their identity. It is what gives them purpose. We have to understand that. And that's what the argument ultimately that we're trying to make and trying to show. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Can you just really quickly, can you restate what you just said before we went off? I I want us to understand. Religion. That race is religionized. And that makes it a far more powerful, long-lasting and entrenched reality than I think we want to admit or even understand. When an entire people group's religion depends, and I mean depends on racial injustice and on superiority, that is not easily addressed simply by, uh, it's, it, it will take this, but it's going to take more than simply like addressing it materially or through law. Those things all matter. But this is like a spiritual battle, right, Lisa? If you talk about yeah. it that way. Yeah, see, that's part of what is... Wow. I mean, honestly, I'm just like, okay, so this, so you're saying it's been religionized, but I'm asking the question, when was it not religionized? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, wh- when was it not religionized? Can we trace back to the point when it became religionized? Have you figured that out? Yeah. So it, what we argue, based on a book by a man named Joel Goza, is that when we had, back in the old countries, we had major philosophers that started in impacting the world. Locke, Hume, Mm -hmm. people like that. Adam Smith. He traces how the things that they argue, which is supposed to be philosophy, they 
make these subtle shifts and sometimes dramatic shifts into religion and start teaching what the implications are for religion. For example, oh my God. Um, one argument that they make is what religion's purpose is to save souls. It's that and only that. Another okay. argument is that it is of, this is amazing that philosophers would say such a thing, but it is of no concern to God that there's racial inequality or any kind of inequality. Therefore, it should be of no concern to you. Who's Firstly, that? inequality. These are the folks like Locke. Yeah. So they're arguing that inequality on earth is of no concern. You can accept that. That's perfectly fine because there's equality in heaven. And if you combine that with Adam Smith and the invisible hand, he's right. saying, that's where we get our laissez-faire capitalism, right? He's saying there's basically this invisible hand. What does the invisible hand come to be? It's God. God himself has said, let capitalism go unfettered and it will produce great wealth and will give unto each according to their so this becomes locked in. So by the time religion, Christianity comes to the United States, it's already ingrained, this idea. And then when the whole idea of race arises, trying to justify slavery and all of that, these things get intertwined. And that's then the point in which it all starts. Okay. So, oh my gosh, I'm like so ready to burst. Anybody who has been listening to me for like the last year or two understands that I've been in this process of decolonizing my faith. And that's, and I know that there's like this movement of deconstruction, but I think that's just not enough because the whole deconstruction movement still leaves the self at the center in terms of you, they went, you reconstructed basically what in your own image, which mostly is white. It's mostly white people who are doing that. Right. So I've been in the process of decolonizing because then the center point is not your own sensibility, but the center point is the truth of who was this brown, colonized, indigenous, serially enslaved people mm. that Jesus came from, right? And yeah. therefore, then what was the scripture actually saying? What was Jesus actually saying in Luke 4? And, and why did he, what was the actual good news and in all of the things? So I think that what I'm hearing from you, so let me just say, okay, let me go back. A couple of months ago, not even a couple, like a month ago, I was down in New Orleans and I was talking with vineyard pastors and a lot of Baptist pastors, actually, who were in the midst of this decolonization. Actually, they were, they explicitly said deconstructing process, right? So and halfway through, I mentioned, well, I'm not actually in this deconstructing project. I'm doing decolonization. That's the work that I'm doing. And I raised for them the problem with, they had lifted up Plato and Aristotle as like they're basically these people they were referencing and got their authority because, because as Plato said, as Aristotle said, and the things that for years I've been writing about how it's Plato who actually gave us our construct of race in the first place. Like Plato is the one, the very first Western philosopher that I can find that actually delineated this thing called race. And Aristotle was his student and about 10 years later made it very clear that hierarchy is a thing. Like this is not just about different people groups. This is about racial hierarchy or the hierarchies of human belonging. When he said barbarians were created to be enslaved, <laughs> that's like, that was his idea. And so I think that the thing that is striking me is what you're finding on a sociological level or you're drawing from, from philosophers 
to understand when did this religion of whiteness come in, I've actually also been on that journey as well, identifying that, or let me just say, in the midst of this conversation down in New Orleans, the moderator said to me, well, you realize that there's really only two main streams of Western Christianity, and they both trace back to either Plato or Aristotle. Ouch. Yeah. Wow. Now you're bringing in Locke and other philosophers that were in that time, like in a more recent, our more recent history, Adam Smith. I mean, how does, what does that say then about Western Christianity? Yes. Well, it's the colonizer. Like for real. Yeah. Yeah. It's what are you doing with your own faith? Same thing that you're saying, decolonizing. And it's, I mean, it's just layer upon layer. That's what is stunning to me. I've been trying to do this for decades and keep realizing how far I have to go. Yeah. Okay. So this is how far you have to go. So I had this deep thought a couple of years ago, right? I'm, I'm like speaking, I was going to speak for a mostly white Quaker group, actually. And I'm asking the question because I'm thinking, okay, What's the vision that they can really lock hold of in their own history of that, like that moment when they didn't imagine that they should rule wherever they go? And I'm thinking of white people, you know, where, and I'm thinking, I'm going, when was that time? When was that time? Mm. When was that time? When was that time? And I literally couldn't think of that time. And then it hit me. You have to go back before the Greek empire, before Aristotle, before Plato. That's a long time ago. <laughs> that's a long time ago. And, it, and I think that's the reason why there's no common memory among people of European descent of not ruling. Is that yep, since that's that right. time, there, the mental model of whiteness is that it rules. Yes. I can remember in high school learning, and we start always with the Greeks, and then you go to the Romans, and then... Yeah. And I remember asking my professor, like, literally, I'm like in ninth grade, wow, Europeans are doing all these things. What's the rest of the world doing? And the the teacher had no answer. Like, didn't know. No concept. It's not Mm -hmm. taught. It's not taught. And here's the thing. Christianity was not even a European religion. Right. Right. It's not even... It is an import. It did not start there. Jesus was not. In fact, there's not even one European in the entirety of scripture. Not one. Not even Paul, who lived in Rome, but was not a European. That's he was true. A brown, colonized, indigenous man from a people who was serially enslaved. Deep. So deep. Yeah. So, 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 <laughs> so. We just came through a major midterm election where candidates are now claiming to be Christian nationalists. You know, how should the church be shepherding the faith as our people are interacting with these powers? I have been saying this. I think that we're in a time of reckoning, a shakedown. It's just people are going to have to stake their claim. Either I'm with this religion of whiteness or I'm trying to do this biblical Christianity thing. I know it's going to be tough, but none of this nonsense of doing both or, yeah, 
if you got candidates claiming I'm a white nationalist, white Christian nationalist, then, and, and if you're identifying with that, then just say it. I'm about the religion of whiteness and don't be hurting Christianity by calling yourself both. I, my son is a, a preacher, pastor. Yeah. And I asked him, I said, just, can you do synchronism biblically? Is, is there ever support where you can do two religions? He did a careful study. And he said, it's pretty clear. Dad, you cannot. Anytime that's in the Bible, God is pretty angry about it. You can't serve two masters. It's that's wow. that close. So we just have to, I think we just got to start naming, calling it out and say, choose. You've got to choose. So you have focused on race. You focused on, really, that's been like the crux of your focus forever. But I wonder if you've also found intersections with race and gender, race and human sexuality, race and ableism, because I have found those intersections when I go back into the law and when I go back into philosophy like Aristotle, who would have understood a true human being to be white, male, able-bodied like him. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like, how are you finding any of those findings as well? Yeah, we're just in the midst of it right now to see, especially for uh, on gender, right? Do all the things we're talking about, are they different, different proportions? Are they experienced differently? So we're going through the data, the second pass, looking at that now. So I don't, we're not far enough to be able to say anything, but I imagine we'll find something. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. Well, I really hope you find something before your book comes out and that, I mean, it's probably not too late for it to be in there, but please do another one quick because the church has already divided down along lines of of race. And you're there right now at a multi-ethnic conference that is, you know, where a lot of the pastors are white Mm -hmm. and most in the vast majority of their congregations are white. And yet they might have 20% of their congregation is of color. And so they're now called a multi-ethnic congregation, right? So, so what is your word after seeing all of this to multi-ethnic congregations and to the rest of the church? I use the image of a GPS, right? You have a destination, you have a starting point, and it tells you the path to get there. But you might take a wrong turn and I've been saying this conference and the multiracial church movement, we've taken many wrong turns yeah. and it has hurt people and it has cost people. And when you see one of the things we found in this particular part of the research is that multiracial churches have grown almost threefold in the last 20 years, but it's entirely people of color going to white churches. There's been zero change in the percent of white people going to churches of color, zero. That tells you everything you need to know <laughs> about maintaining dominance and superiority and all of that. So I am saying when you make a wrong turn, a series of wrong turns with a GPS, it doesn't say you idiot, you loser. It says recalculating. And that's what I'm saying. We need to recalculate. We have to admit we have made too many wrong turns. Stop, recalculate, figure out how to get to the destination. So we're trying to work on that. Now, in your talk that I saw you give for my former denomination, ECC, you said something that I didn't expect you. You went to a place that was surprised me. You said that we have what we need in our faith. What did you mean by that? Like, what is it that we have in our faith mm-hmm. that can actually help to counter this assault on Christian faith? 
Yeah, well, one, we have the Spirit on our side. Two, we have the Scriptures that if we are willing to actually apply them and listen to them and live them, then we'll get where we need to go. The problem is that we're not, we haven't been willing to live them, to, to state them, to claim them. There's cost. One of the th- chapters that we have in the book is we look at white folks who have said, I will not bow to this religion of whiteness and the intense cost that they have paid. In each case of the ones we feature, they've lost their jobs. They have yeah. been exiled from their churches and they ultimately moved from their metropolitan areas because their lives ended. They had to restart because they would not bow to it. But what does God say? That's the cost. That's picking up your cross. But I guarantee you this, I will give you a new family, a better family, a bigger family, a family of people who've been waiting for you open arms, who've gone through what you have gone through for generations. So that's what I say. I, the resources are within the faith. Is that what gives you hope? Absolutely. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media and produced by Corey Nathan. Freedom Road Podcast is executive produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Say and know by signing up for updates. We promise we will not flood your inbox. And we invite you to listen again to the next episode. In the meantime, join the conversation on Freedom Road. And a really great way to join that conversation is to become a Patreon member because our Patreon members get an extra little treat. Mm -hmm.